Hello! Welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, Noblemite.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs, any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Today, we're talking about PDFs, low-level characters, and multi-classing in D&D Next. I'm your host and roundtable creator, James Intracasso. You can find me on Twitter, at James Intracasso. With me today at the roundtable are Greg Blair. Howdy. Vegas Lancaster. Yo, yo, yo. Alex Basso. What's up? And Rudy Basso. Hello. And today's get-to-know-you question for our panel is, how do you like to generate ability scores? Greg, we'll start with you. I like the 46 Throne Review 1 style, as opposed to you roll 3d6 and you get what you get in the scores that you got them. But honestly, that's just because I like the opportunity to maybe get better scores than point by. I like, maybe, maybe I win. Big, big money, no whammies. Or maybe I'll get horrible scores. I don't know. But it's worth the risk to me. Excellent. Vegas? I was thinking about this today. I actually made a character for D&D next today. I used the uh, uh, the new point buy that they featured in the packet, uh, pretty much similar to old point buys, uh, except that you can't pick an 18 uh, uh, for your character. You can only pick up to a 16. Uh, I always prefer point buys. I think, uh, at least if you're playing in a, a long campaign, um, then you and everyone else, you know, you've got the same, uh, ability powers as your fellow players. Um, and I kind of think that's probably the best way to go about it. Uh, the only way I like rolling and getting some random scores is if you're playing like a real short, maybe a one shot campaign or something like that where it doesn't matter so much but the way we play a couple years at a time i'd rather everyone be on the same ground excellent excellent a nice socialist commentary by vegas lancaster (laughs) alex basso how do you generate ability scores i always go point by i calculate my character i plan it out i don't want to leave anything up to chance so point by it is. And Rudy? Array all day. I don't have time to be spending on figuring out my ability scores with complicated math, like rolling dice. <laughs> I'm using that time to make my background up. So I'll just go with an array and assign my abilities as it is already set up. And you know me as the DM, 3D6 in order. That's what I prefer because I like seeing players <laughs> struggle. What I hate most about rolling dice is every time you do that in practice, there's all this, uh, there's a lot of, of, of gimmies in place to let people get better scores than they would get if they had just rolled dice. It's always like, oh, you got some crappy scores, why don't you roll again and see that you do better? But if you do, if you get six 18s in a row, no one's like, oh, that character's too good, you better roll some more mediocre dice <laughs> uh that is a good point i'm sensing from you you are not happy with the fact that i told people they could roll i just i think it's silly uh i hear you i hear you and for our next campaign i will consider point by only i'm right. crushed <laughs> so it just uh 
or so it's been brought to my attention that Scourge of the Sword Coast, the adventure that's coming out in February, that is the next Sundering adventure and also going to be the next, I guess, Encounters adventure, it looks like, is going to be available on dndclassics.com, which is part of Drive Through RPG, and it's going to be PDF only. We did want to see PDFs available. We thought it was a good idea. But I'm wondering how you feel about PDF only. And do you think Wizards is trying to gauge how well they'll do if they just put out PDFs for certain products? Greg, I'm going to throw it out to you because I know you have a strong opinion about this. How do you feel about a PDF only product? Look, I want them to release digital stuff, but nothing really compares to having the book in your hand. And I think some people will prefer the PDF stuff, but to not offer the the printed version at all. I mean, I guess from a business perspective, they can get away with it. It's amazing for them because it's not like they're going to charge you a whole lot less for it. And then they're going to make so much more back. But it is it is a little disappointing um, to think that they might kind of eschew printed materials altogether. I don't think they do that, though. I mean, I feel like they got to put out the PHB, right? I mean, right, guys? Yeah, I think you're going yeah. to see all of your core rule books still in a printed format. I, hopefully, you'll also see them available in PDF. But I do think perhaps some things, maybe adventures or supplemental materials that are coming out, you may occasionally see in a PDF only if this does well for them. Which maybe, in my mind, means maybe we're going to get some more stuff as well which would be pretty cool. That's mm. kind of how I'm feeling about it. Rudy, what do you think? I'm a man of the times. It's 2014. Even in my work day, I prefer PDFs and things on my computer versus having a piece of paper in front of me. I'm all for PDF only. Uh, it is, I believe, the last adventure was $35, and this one is something like $18. So it does save us money, which is great. And it saves Wizards money, and that's great, too. They don't have to spend money on the print run. And they can spend that money elsewhere, like making more stuff. So I'm okay with it. Uh, it's a preference thing at the end of the day. I can see where Greg's coming from, wanting to have it in front of him. But that's just not me, man. I'm beyond it. Uh, I think we're going to see a hybrid between some things <laughs> being released in print and online and some online uh, PDF-only adventures. Uh, I think adventures uh, and that sort of thing is probably the best place to have PDF-only uh, material because you know only the DM needs the adventure. They don't need to print uh, them for everybody. Uh, an adventure isn't necessarily as good a gift as a set of the three core books might be. Um, I, I think they're definitely going to want a player's handbook, a dungeons master's guide, a monster manual, uh, on store shelves. So people walking through a store can see them and pick them up and walk out with it. Uh, and then, you know, in, the book it'll be like hey for more adventures check out wizards.com slash dnd yeah i think you're absolutely right i think that's what we're going to see and if it does mean more materials are available i think that's a good thing alex basso is this going to make things easier to steal is wizards going to hurt themselves with this approach uh i mean i guess it will make it e easier to steal because the pdfs are already made but i feel like in the past you know 
you always had someone who was going to scan everything and upload it anyway, so stuff was being stolen. It just means that one person, the original person who's uploading that, that book, has to do less work, but I think they'll, they'll still be stolen. The last time I bought something on RPG, my name was printed on every single page, so that might be a deterrent to uh, possible uploaders. I assume there's other ways to, or there are ways to get rid of that, that it's almost like an ink print. Uh, like you'd see for a movie screener, but it was on every single page. So I was hesitant to share it even amongst my friends. So that might scare off possible uh, illegal persons. Yes, and that is true. I am looking at a PDF I bought from DriveThruRPG for D&D Next, Ghosts of Dragonspear Castle, and my name is indeed on every page. So it may actually make stealing and sharing harder for people to do. The Scourge of the Sword Coast takes place in Forgotten Realms, and I know right now they're trying to push this sundering event in Forgotten Realms that is supposed to set the realms back to a place where many of the old school players will be happy with it. What other settings would you want to see? Right now we're getting a lot of Forgotten Realms, and I feel like it's because of this sundering event. But I would love to see some other stuff. You know me, I'm all about Eberron. I love the Buran. And I want to see some adventures come out in there. How about you guys? Vegas, we'll start with you. What other settings would you want to see? Uh, I love Dark Sun. I think that's a really interesting world. Uh, A lot of uh, tough living going on in the Dark Sun world. I also love Gamma World. Uh, They released Gamma World as a fourth edition game. Maybe a few years after they initially released fourth edition. And I'd love to see them do that with next eventually too uh, i think they're going to roll out the worlds rather slowly and the reason i think that is because uh D next is really pushing variant rules and modular gameplay and i suspect each campaign setting is going to come with its own new modular rules with it uh and that probably won't be something they'll want to roll out super quickly i would like to second Gamma World, I love the ridiculousness. Greg, what other campaign worlds would you want to see? I'm right there with you, Vegas. Dark Sun is one of my favoritest places to go in D&D, just because of how unrelentingly brutal everything is. It's so much fun. Um, but since Vegas went with Dark Sun, I don't know. I'm kind of a sucker for, for Planescape and the City of Doors, uh, but it, which I know Rudy <laughs> loves. Um <laughs> But I think I don't think we're going to see anything really new or different until Christmas, because I think they're just going to focus on Forgotten Realms, especially with the, the reboot. Essentially, the the just kidding undo that they're trying to go with right now. I don't think they're going to muddy the waters, but we'll see. I guess It'd be pretty cool to play an Eberron, since I know Planescape campaign is not going to happen. Do you think Forgotten Realms will be the default setting that comes out? Yeah, makes them the most money. So it's probably going to be the default. Well, I think it'll be one of the first, if not the first setting they release. But do you think the core rulebook will say Forgotten Realms in it? Oh, I see what you mean. Nah, I don't, I don't think they're going to go that far. I mean, especially how they've been, you know, they put out that article about dwarves and subraces and how they want, you know, just to not have gold dwarves and these dwarves and Hylar and Daywar and all that stuff. They just want it to be... Um, a little more common, a little more unified amongst the different worlds. So I don't think they're going to call out anyone in particular as being, 
this is where we're playing now. You can go somewhere else if you want. You know, I think they're trying to unify it a lot more than that. I think one of the big goals when they made D&D Next was to make it familiar to all players from, you know, your old school 2.0 to 3.5 to whatever. And I think Forgotten Realms is something everyone is at least familiar with. I think, you know, my first introduction to Dungeons and Dragons was the video game Baldur's Gate. And in the the Baldur's Gate uh, adventure they released, there were some of those old characters popping up. I think that they're going to want to push Forgotten Realms really hard because everyone knows something about it. And I would not be surprised if it was made the official setting. Uh, I think they made some weird changes to the world with the spell plague, but as we've talked about, they're kind of going back on that. So everyone knows what's going on. Also, there's a Neverwinter MMO out right now, so I could see them trying to, I, I don't know, use that to their advantage to push MMO players into, uh, you know, here's something you already know in an RPG form, so you can make that transition to pen and paper. Yes, that's true. And actually, they have uh, the D&D online MMO took place in Eberron, but there's a portal that can take you into the Forgotten Realms universe as well. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. That game is lame, so I, I don't know much about it. I'm not a big fan of that one. <laughs> Are there any other worlds you would want to see brought to the D&D stage other than Forgotten Realms, Rudy? Uh, you can bring all of them. Nothing in Travail. That place is dumb. I don't care for it. But, you know, it's always great to have options. It's just how much resources will dun- uh, wizards have to put into making these campaigns. And then I think of Gamma World didn't have a lot after the initial release, if I recall. Um, you know, if you make these worlds and people are excited about them, they're going to want more adventures. They're going to want more errata, more rules. And it's hard to juggle five or six different worlds at once, I feel like. Uh, I'm kind of going to piggyback here on Rudy's answer, but I definitely think Forgotten Realms should be the default setting. It's the one they definitely had their most mainstream success with. And I think most, you know, non-D&D players, if they know anything about D&D, it's from the Forgotten Realms universe. Uh, So they should definitely stick with that. And I think they should. They should focus on worlds, get them really fleshed out, uh, give a lot of content for them before they start switching around to the other ones. Uh, I do like Dark Sun. I like, you know, the gritty feel of the world. But I don't want, you know, a half-assed Dark Sun setting thrown out. They're going to do more upkeep on the worlds than they have in the past rather than releasing them and letting them go and moving on to the next. I think you'll see they'll roll out campaigns and worlds at different times but they're going to continue to put out adventures and support for the worlds rather than perhaps a supplemental book for fighters or a book all about the Feywild. I think what you'll actually see are okay great we're going to continue to put out stuff for Forgotten Realms and Eberron and adventures and that kind of thing. That was sort of what they had said at launch. I think they'll go with whatever makes them money in the end. Anybody have any opinions on Greyhawk, or is that just the most boring world? I don't know anything about Greyhawk. Do you know anything about Greyhawk? Or Ravenloft? Is that another world? Ravenloft. That's like a horror world, right? I think that'd be kind of cool. There's a lot of evil within it, and it's run by a vampire lord. And uh, Greyhawk is really cool. That's the classic campaign scene. I'm a big fan of Greyhawk, actually. And that's what I was saying. Uh, Greyhawk, in my mind, D&D is... Greyhawk is the standard setting, 
Uh, that may not have been the case in fourth edition, but if if it doesn't launch with Greyhawk as the standard setting, it's hard to imagine them releasing Greyhawk later on because of its standardness. Uh-huh. What's so unique about Greyhawk that Forgotten Realms doesn't do? That's what I mean. Uh, I think Greyhawk came first. It did. I sure. mean, it, so like everyone's got technology and stuff, and you know, Dark Sun's a world where it's all desert. What's neat about Greyhawk? I, I don't understand. Greyhawk, I think, was just the original setting that Guy It's just high came fantasy, though? So nostalgia like- is its unique point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was created by Gary Gygax, so yes, it is certainly sacred in, uh, in that case. And it's also, it's where sort of your uh, very classic wizards come from, you know, your big bees, your milfs, all the guys the spells are named from, and it's also where all of the classic gods come from. I could talk a little more about Ravenloft, though. That is some cool stuff. That was basically like all the most evil things got pulled and sucked into this demiplane, and that was Ravenloft. So, like, there was this re- really evil, wow, I don't know what his class or whatever it was, but like a Wraith Knight from Dragonlance. And he got sucked into Ravenloft. And then he set himself up as as a lord of like one of the realms. There's all this; it's all the most evil, horrible things from all the D and D places get pulled there, and it and it corrupts you and it influences you. And there's these evil mists. It's pretty neat. So I don't know. You might you might dig it, Rudy. There's a lot of um, intrigue and kind of political machinations too between some of the different you know monster rulers. You got the vampire lord and all that business. Hey guys, let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor, NobleKnight.com. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade. So you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Well, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. And we're back. All right, so we're going to move on to our next topic, low-level characters and D&D next. Right now, the way things are split up, levels one through three are where your class gets all of its defining abilities. They no longer get them immediately at first level. They're spread out. This does a lot of interesting things like make multi-classing harder to cheat with essentially. And it also means during levels one through three, you're really getting to know what your character does a little more slowly rather than having a whole bucket of things thrown at you at once. Let's talk about the approach and if you guys like the way that feels. Rudy, I'll start with you. How do you feel about levels one through three in D&D next? Sure. So, you know, in 3.5, you made your first level character and there wasn't really much for you to do. You hit a guy with a sword. In 4th edition, you made your character, and there was a lot of really neat stuff to do. You had a bunch of powers to choose from. In next, I feel like it's sort of in between, in that at levels 1 through 3, 
you'll have some choices made to you, but they're not nearly as many as you would in 4th edition. But I was surprised that there's no feat choice for any class until level 4. And that's, I guess, because we've talked about this before, the feats are so big. But I just, that was just something that was like, oh, creating my level 1 character and no feat to choose from. Hmm, this is different. And even those feats are optional. Uh, the feats so far are an optional rule. You could just get an ability score improvement at 4th level and succeeding... Uh, what would have been the feet levels in the past. Um, and you have to make a choice between whether you're taking a feat or improving your ability score. Uh, so there really is a lot less to pick from in, in that sense. Do you think that's a good thing, Vegas, that there's less to pick from? I think I've made the point pretty clear in the past that I thought there were way too many dumb feats <laughs> and, and clutter in past editions. And I'm sure we'll get that again eventually. Uh I think for now, it's nice to have less options. And as the game's out for a while, we'll get more and more options. And uh, that'll be nice to have once we've grown tired of what we have right now. I like the simplicity of, you know, you can hop on and say, oh, hey, guys, you're level four, by the way. And I'm ready to go in five minutes. You know, that's pretty nice to be able to do that. And the, and the five minutes was, well, which one of these three feats is best for me? Okay, I'll take this one. And that's it. You know, you roll your D10, you're good to go. Um, as for, you know, kind of the general power levels of one to three, I, I think I think I do like it. I was kind of opposed to it at first. I was like, oh, where's all my stuff? I'm not, I'm so useless right now. I can't do anything. I'm not my iconic, I'm not the iconic version of my class. But, I like it. I like how it kind of builds builds the heroes up. You know, I think that's pretty cool how they're doing that. And I do like that it makes multiclassing a little less silly in some ways. You know, you got to commit. You got to commit to that class to really get the most out of it. Uh, I really feel like there's a lot of variance in the complexity for the classes right now in the early level, which is something I really like. Um, I mean, I... I my last couple characters, I've played a rogue, I've played a wizard, and I've played a ranger. And if I had to kind of set, I'd say the wizard was far and away the most complex. Like at level one, you know, you're choosing all these spells, um, you're setting your ability. I mean, you, you set abilities for everyone, but compared to the ranger, who I don't get a choice at all. Like I get tracking on level one, uh, and and I, I choose a weapon I want. There's really, there's no, nothing there. There's no real depth until you start leveling up. So really, it kind you can choose what you want. Do you want to spend a lot of time creating a character? Then go with a wizard. Go with a spellcaster. If you don't want to do anything, stick with uh, you know a ranger or a rogue or a fighter for the beginning. I mean, eventually, as you level up, there'll be more complexity built into the character. But for starting out a new character, it, there's really a wide variance. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I thought was really cool. Um, so I played playing a fighter in the most recent iteration, and... When I originally made my concept, I thought, okay, you know, two-handed guy, maybe pole arm, little reach. And then, but because I didn't have all the crazy abilities right away, um, you know, like I didn't have to choose everything in the first couple levels, it actually allowed me to, to change my mind about where I wanted to take the character. And now I'm going a completely different route from what I originally had thought within, without having to say, oh, Oh, hey, by the way, 
this isn't good. I want to change this to my DM. Like it's totally legit. It's within the rules. Cause like I didn't have, I didn't get locked in to do all the different things. I'm not bound already so tightly by my choices, which is kind of neat. So you're saying that characters can develop a little more organically over time rather than having a lot thrown at you at first level and sort of locking you into what you want to do, which I think is good for new players as well. Mm-hmm. Rudy. Uh, I did want to bring up that one of the most surprising things for me and I actually had to double check myself, was when I made my fighter, sword and shield style, I took the defense specialty, and I wore uh, one of the heavier armors. My starting AC was 19, which just feels absurd in a lot of ways. It's awesome. And this isn't a game that emphasizes uh, increases in armor class every other level or what have you, but it just, it was like, it took me aback to see, oh, I have 19 AC, no one's going to hit me. And then I got hit a lot still, so it doesn't even really mean that much. I don't know. As someone who had a fighter start with an AC of 16, I think it meant a lot. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty. That was pretty rad. Yeah, it's the difference between difference between dodging some stuff and getting hit by everything. It's pretty sweet that you could you could start off, and especially playing in a party with two fighters, we had such different characters. Like you were super tanky, it was, it was cool. you know. Like that's pretty neat that even at those low levels, we had enough differentiation between two of the same class. I definitely appreciated that. Alex Basso, do you feel like there's enough customization available at the low levels? Uh, again, I'm gonna go. With, depends on class. Like fighters, like Greg just said, there. You know, they get their their um, fighting style choice. I believe it's called at level one, which is a huge way to define your character. Um, you know, wizards, you just choose what type of spell you want. Monks, they get their domain at level one. But you compare that to a ranger uh, or a rogue who, at level one, a ranger is just choosing. Actually, a ranger is not choosing anything. They don't get any choice at level one. Besides <laughs> weapon? One, yeah, besides your weapon. You know, they don't get any class choices. Do you want to shoot a bow or do you want to use a melee weapon? That's it. Uh, and uh, a rogue, you're just choosing, like, your skills. So some of the classes, I feel like maybe they can move up their builds a level earlier or just give them some sort of choice. But others, like fighter... You know, they're, they're completely different from the start. So there's a lot of talk from people who don't like this system. They want to get everything at level one, and they think wizards should have a level zero for new players who are just coming in. There's a lot of nerd rage on message boards and things like that. Do you think that experienced players, if they want, should just start at third level? Or are they missing out on something there by not starting at one? Are they missing the experience of not growing from level 1 to level 20? Are they missing out on fighting hordes of goblins and being vulnerable to that? And is that something they have a right to be mad about? Greg? I don't really think they have a right to be mad about it at all. I mean, well, I guess people could be mad about whatever they want, but I think it's silly because, I mean, if your group feels this way, just start at a higher level. I mean, Dark Sun, you had to start at level three because if you didn't, you were going to die. And that's just how <laughs> the setting was. So if, if your DM is cool with it, just roll with it that way. I do like the the brutality of level one, the potential brutality, I should say, which I guess you could notice a theme that I like for characters to be in danger of dying. But I mean, get like-minded people together, make it happen. I think a level zero would be silly personally. I agree that a level one or level zero, excuse me, would be silly. I think that's a discussion a DM and his players have to have and make the choice from there. I could see starting at 
level three and having the path choice be your first decision, especially as Alex put it, if you're a ranger or a rogue, because that's a little boring. But I never think anyone should tell anyone how they should play D&D. So I think that, uh, besides wizards, that is, I think that the system right now is fine as is. I don't think there's a lot lost between one through three. I think levels are dumb. I, I think uh, there's definitely some value at starting in level one because it's a new edition and there's new rules and there's stuff to get used to. Uh, Greg said earlier in this discussion that, you know, he had an idea for his fighter and playing in the first or second level uh, in the new system. He said, hey, maybe I don't like that so much. I'm going to try this other thing instead. Uh, and playing the first few levels out helped him figure that out. Uh, if you've played a little bit in the edition already, then you already know what you're getting into and fine, start at a higher level. Or if, if you, you think you're a champ and, and read the rules, uh, you and your group can start out later too. Uh, but I, I think there are some value to the level one and level two. But what if I want to start out at level one, have the low hit points and everything, but I still want all of my abilities? Am I just being a whiner or am I entitled to that? Uh, you could do it DM, that way. I mean, yeah. I would think a DM would have to fold into the story as to why I think that someone has these abilities but low hit points. So, I mean, it's on you, James. <laughs> I think that's kind of fair. Like, when I was playing a rogue, I was so jealous of everyone else in the early levels about how they were doing stuff and having fun, and all I was doing was throwing <laughs> daggers and hiding behind the, the wall to make stealth checks. So, um, I mean, look at the classes first. Find something. If you're someone who needs to be interested by choices in combat, then, you know, research it. Because there are, you know, it's available for you. Look, you're entitled to, to feel however you like, but at the end of the day, we all rely on wizards to put out a basic framework for how we're going to play this game. We like how they put the, the game together in general. We, you know, have faith in what they're going to do. And there's a certain nostalgia factor, too, because there could be another system that's also awesome. But, oh, D&D, kind of trusting them to, to guide us in this way. That's going to be fun and that's going to be cool. But if people don't like it, they can always change it. I mean, house rule, everybody always has house rules, right? So if the DM says, all right, yeah, sure, take up to your level three abilities, we keep your same crappy hit points, that's fine. Um, but something else that I kind of wanted to point out is that I'm pretty sure I remember reading on one of, maybe it's one of Merle's columns or um, somewhere else on D&D, but isn't the experience curve for one and two um, a lot, I don't know, steeper? So, like, you're not in levels one and two for very long anyway, right? It's like one adventure each. Some of that effect, James? Yes, that's correct. Uh, the You're supposed to level up from one to two and two to three, one session per leveling up. Yeah, so, I mean, I think a lot more is being made out of this than really maybe needs to be, simply because people are used to kind of the standard, maybe a more drawn-out, leveling progression but in one session a piece it's nothing let's move on to our final topic multi-classing in D&D next overall what are your basic thoughts about this uh, in any edition how do you feel about multi-classing in general is it for you do you like when other people do it does it provide too much customization for me 
I like multi-classing. I don't know that I've ever seen it done in a way that I am satisfied with. In 4th edition, it didn't go far enough. In 3rd edition and 3.5, it had a lot of bugs. Craig, what are your thoughts about multi-classing overall in any edition? Well, I'm definitely with you that 4th ed, I didn't feel like I could multi-class enough. Um, maybe, I think there was some kind of a multi-class paragon path or something like that but overall it just didn't seem like i could mix it up as much as i maybe would have liked to then they you know then they threw out the hybrid classes which i don't even want to talk about the hybrid classes but and then you know three five yeah, the experience point penalties which i guess was to try and prevent abuse from dabbling into you know oh, let me take a level of this <laughs> no, <laughs> um but i, I Initially, I'm, I'm I'm optimistic about multiclassing and next. I think it's kind of neat um, how you can just tack on whatever you want. I really liked multiclassing in D20 Modern and uh, Star Wars Saga Edition, which is kind of the same thing. But you could just you take levels in whatever classes you want. Who cares? Because it'll just turn kind of add up to determine the overall effectiveness. That seems kind of like what they're doing in next with the addition of ability score requirements. So um, I think this could work out really, really well. I also like how, you know, to get the full deal for a class, you really need to get to third level, which means you got to invest in it a little more, which I think is a cleaner way of making people focus on certain classes more than just dabbling than the experience point penalty was. So well, that's pretty good. You know, I could never justify multi-classing from a mechanics perspective. I think at one point I did take a level in another class during fourth edition, and I found myself going, oh, I wish I was still just my base class so I could have more base class stuff and be stronger. It really is a, a strong, a hard decision I think you make. And if you're really into role-playing, it could definitely work there. But from a pure mechanics perspective, it's really difficult to choose for me. I think uh, in Next, the magic feats that allow you first-level spells for Druid or Wizard or what have you are great as an alternative. I think that if I were to say I'm a fighter and I dabble in a little magic on the side, rather than multi-class Wizard, I would take one of those feats. You know, from my reading on the internet, I always found or felt like other people were a lot more interested in multi-classing than I was. Uh, I never quite understood um, uh, maybe the appeal of multi-classing. And when I looked up other people's characters online, especially in third edition, uh, it seemed like there was a lot of, you know, uh, rogues with a few classes and fighter uh, or something like that. Uh, and I think there was a big, munchkining uh, power gaming component to that in third edition where you could take the first or second level of a class and get most of the benefits of that class just from doing that because a lot of the uh, benefits of the class were front-loaded onto the first couple levels. Definitely seems like they want to give you the option to multi-class in next, but don't want you to use it to just uh, power game like a lot of people, I guess, were doing in third edition. So you have pretty high ability requirements to take a level in another class. And also you don't, you know, you get some benefits, but you don't get crazy benefits by taking 
the first or second level of a class? Uh, I'm a fan of this system. I'm happy they didn't decide to go to uh, second edition and make multi-classes, just splitting XP between uh, multiple classes. Um, I wonder if they're going to introduce prestige classes. That's my kind of my one thinking here. If they're going to bring that in, like from third. Um, which I like. I like prestige classes, I guess, in theory. But then there were hundreds of them. Uh, maybe not hundreds, but so many of them. And so specific. and it can, But it did kind of give you something to aim for if you're someone who thinks about your class in the long run. Uh, and just also to, to touch on 4th Ed, um, I'm going to just agree with everyone else here that 4th Ed multi-classing, unless there, there were some very specific combos I can think of. Like when I was a ranger, I took some fighter multi-classing just so I could take a skill. But it really wasn't something... If you were casual about your class and not trying to fully max out, it, it didn't really appeal. It just doesn't seem to make sense from just glancing at it. It's funny. To me, multiclassing is a very organic thing because maybe, like Greg was saying, you might decide to go in a different direction with your character. Maybe your character gets his or her life saved by a wizard and then decides, oh, I should pursue some magical arts. And then you have a rogue wizard. Or maybe your character design from the beginning is somebody who is a little bit magical and a little bit great at swordplay, kind of like a fantasy Jedi, you know? (laughs) And I think to make those things work, especially with what they have now, maybe it's better to multi-class as opposed to create a whole new sword mage class. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, I was just going to say that I, I... Could see myself multi-classing more for RP reasons than for Munchkin reasons because the Munchkin stuff sometimes is just too much to figure out with the multi-class rules. But in terms of kind of an organic growth of the character, or especially if you know, a lot of times multi-classing, it's like Rudy was saying, it's not as efficient as being I am the most amazing level eight. Whatever, rogue wizard fighter something then oh i'm level four for this you know you're not going to be as ridiculous so maybe that's a way for people who are making rp choices to like oh i don't really care if i'm the most amazing this is what sounds the best for my character yeah i just wanted to say as someone who thinks who chooses the array because it is easy and not at all complicated the <laughs> spell casting multi-class stuff is just like another world i have no no interest in doing that whatsoever and that's just me but i don't think i'm the only person who feels that way so i would definitely like to see it uh less complicated uh i just feel like the rules like you said they they could definitely be streamlined um it makes me it just makes me think about i just read it over again right now and it immediately just made me recall the hybrid classes from fourth it's uh, all these complicated rules for not that much of a benefit, and I don't think it's really going to be popular. I mean, if you're going to do it organically, maybe it would. I mean, it wouldn't provide any use. I feel like it it's, seems like you really need to plan out a character to get the use out of these spellcasting rules to actually optimize it. I like at least that it's unified rather than having to track. You know, let me track my wizard spell progression and my this spell progression and my that spell progressions. Oof. Do the feats. Feats. Well, the feats are good, but 
you know, what if you want to be able to, I don't know, shoot many fireballs and many druid lightnings? Uh, and just, I mean, from reading this, you still do need to track your spells, Greg. Like, you get five, like, say you're a level five caster, you'll get a certain amount of spells, but you still yeah. need to track which ones are for each class. Because you can't, cat, you know, if you're a bard and a wizard, you can't cast certain level bard spells and certain level wizard spells. So they're still tracking and you need to pay attention to that stuff. Well, bollocks to it then, man. I can't. But I mean, that I think that's mostly yeah. just for, you know, you have the primary spellcasting classes and then you have like, you know, the bard, the ranger, the paladin. If you mix those together, then it kind of becomes more of a headache. I think what we all know is that it's just unnatural for a wizard and a cleric to mix to begin with. So I'm against all wizard mixings. Really? What are you You're... talking about, man? <laughs> <laughs> That's a thaumaturgist. It's unnatural. Yeah, what what are you talking about? I don't know. About? I was trying to make a joke that <laughs> I just I'm shocked. I didn't I knew that he hated paladins. Yeah. <laughs> that he hated ability scores. I knew that he hated skills. skills. I just oof. there's so much I didn't know about you. Rudy Masso is the Rush Limbaugh of the Dungeons and Dragons. Round <laughs> <laughs> him up in a camp and shoot him. Ow. <laughs> and with that, I think we are done for the day. Uh, Rudy, where can people direct their hate mail to you? You can tweet me at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O, or check out my sketch comedy group at callouscomehomecomedy.com. And Vegas, where can folks find you? I'm on Twitter, at Vegas Lancaster. And if you're in the Philadelphia area, uh, any Friday night with the Philadelphia N-Crowd Improv Comedy Troupe. PhillyNCrowd.com And Greg, where can people read about your GURPS adventure? <laughs> yeah, just the one so far. But uh, you can go check it out at DungeonFantastic.com dot blogspot.com my buddy writes that and he does a lot of cool um different adventure logs and writings about GURPS and kind of rpgs in general so check it out and alex basso does not have an internet identity you can find me on twitter at james intercasso that's j-a-m-e-s-i-n-t-r-o-c-a-s-o and check out my new blog which is all about the fifth edition world i'm building it's at worldbuilderblog.me. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Greg, Vegas, Alex, and Rudy. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. You can also leave us a comment about the show on the Tome's website. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, noblenight.com. Keep on rolling and keep listening to the round table.